Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Your Book, the podcast for literary nosy parkers. I'm your book inspector, Daisy Buchanan, and the author of Insatiable, a love story for greedy girls. If you'd like a signed copy, you can order one from the Margate Bookshop, the friendly bookshop beside the sea. They deliver nationwide. We've been taking a bit of a break, but we're back with a very exciting summer special, a conversation with the author, actor and comedian Izzy Suti. I loved Izzy's novel, Jane is Trying. A moving, tender, heartbreaking and beautifully written and very funny book that has stayed with me long after I turned the last page. It's comic, it's tragic, it's about obsession, betrayal and Sharon Osborne. Izzy and I talked about trying not to write for your critics, the magic of the magus and everyone's favourite literary penis, Ralph. Enjoy. First of all, congratulations on Jane is Trying. It's wonderful. It's so funny Thank and you. moving and sad. And one of those books that I kept missing. And I kept missing Jane and wondering how she was and wanting to call her and then remembering. <laughs> it's a book. Oh, thank you so much. That, that, means, that, um, that means so much to me. Um, thank you. That's so lovely. Because um, it's a bit weird when you first send it out, isn't it? You kind of work on it for so long and writing the memoir was a really different experience because there were bits that I'd done as stand-up and had done loads of times on stage and then kind of wrote it up as bits in a book and because it had cartoons in it as well and stuff like that. Whereas Jane is trying, I felt like I was starting from scratch and kind of with a kind of nub of an idea and then expanding it. And so, yeah, I actually had in a way a lot more joy from writing the novel but it felt far more risky I think. That's just um, broken a memory I think I remember seeing you and Sarah Pascoe talking about your memoir at Port Elliot a few years ago. Yeah I think she was doing a bit on Animal as well um, at the same time yeah oh yeah god I love that festival it's it's brilliant isn't it and everyone goes swimming in the sea and kind of really hammered I just was like wow it's like it's been made for me not the sea a lake isn't it it's near a lake yes yeah there's a sort of a lovely muddy well you know everyone kind of just thinks it's a good idea and throws themselves in and throws their children in yes I remember when there were questions and wanting to ask a question and then realizing that my question was can I be your friend? And they're like, no, I'll just sit on my hands and, and let that go. <laughs> really well, well, statement. You can definitely be friends with both of us. I know I'm answering for Sarah as well, but she definitely won't mind. I was wondering whether there are any books where the subject of motherhood or thinking of children or families had been particularly resonant for you. Uh, books about motherhood. Actually, there is an amazing book about motherhood that I read 
um, which is it's called The Good Mother, which is so similar to A Good Enough Mother mm. by Beth Thomas, which I would also recommend. Um, but yeah, it's by um, and it was made into a film. So I think it must have done really well. But I never know things that have been made into films with Diane Keaton and Liam Neeson. But Ooh. yeah, it's called The Good Mother. Um, I would really recommend that. I mean, it's from a while ago. Um, but yes, it, I haven't read anything else by her. And I don't even know how I came across it. Have you read it? The name sounds really familiar. It brings up some really interesting topics of... I remember I remember, I read it quite a while ago, and it wasn't really a massive influence on my book, but it really stayed with me. And I think it made me realise that you can introduce nuance without having to kind of um, conclude it, if that makes sense. There's quite an ambiguous thing in it where the main character who has a young child gets into a new relationship with a guy and he he walks around naked and and she doesn't feel quite comfortable with that in front of the child and it's um it's kind of as i remember it's kind of unresolved i don't think and it's really uncomfortable to read and my book i don't think is is like that but i think sometimes there's um a tendency in things to and, and in life and certainly in social media to kind of want a resolution to things so that um, nuance is kind of stamped out or if it is introduced it's kind of like, but but in the end this happened and um, he was good and she was bad and so on and as far as I recall that doesn't happen it's just kind of like this thing this thing happened this is how I'm going to tell the story and I I really really liked that. I think it's so powerful isn't it when books give us space to not know and books show us other people not knowing and I think you're so right there was a thread on Twitter where someone was talking about the way that reality TV is edited and that it's so polarised and you're like who's the good one who's the villain and it's just so unlike life and as a a big fan of reality TV but that relationship is complicated and I've always said I believe we get the telly we deserve and I've always been really resistant to that the snobbishness around some of it but right, for example I'm completely off the subject of books and without wanting to judge anyone who's getting a huge amount of enjoyment and entertainment for it Lord knows we need it I'm not watching Love Island this year having been a huge Love Island fan because I think the number of really really tragic deaths that have been linked to the show I just can't quite but I wonder whether there's going to be a shift and if we are going to see smarter reality tv we've been watching repeats of the cruise on bbc4 and that does just capture normalness and humanness in a way that's been very ahead of its time is it as exciting to watch though i suppose that's the only you get the drama don't you when you when as you say in the edit people are good and evil and I think I would probably much rather ro- watch The Cruise than Love Island. I've actually never watched Love Island, but I can totally see why you, as a previous fan, are kind of going, that's... Because I think the problem is, you you as a contestant, they, they normally aren't famous beforehand, or always aren't, I imagine. Um, and then you're flung into this world where you feel like you are, you have got to be good, or you have got to be evil, you have, you know... And um, that's not being a human being. So it's just so hard to live a life like that. When I think back to the first Big Brother with like Anna playing the guitar and it was like so sweet and it was more like a social experiment, wasn't it? It was 
Was it Craig who won, who was a builder, and he was just the most normal man in the world? Yes, Craig, yes. And then he gave all his money away to... I think he had a, a family friend who had a disability and he, he gave it to her. I seem to remember, like, he, he absolutely wasn't in it for anything other than kind of for the experience, it seemed. So I think it's okay. So as I've got older, I used to feel quite strongly that if you liked reality TV... I couldn't be friends with you, really, kind of thing. And now as I've got older, I've thought, um, well, actually, I liked reality TV all along, so I think it was just a part of myself that I didn't like. Um, But also, I think it's okay to have varied... I think as long as that's not all you're watching, I think it's okay. And I think also at different times in our lives, we need different things, and and that's okay too. So... um, I love Married at First Sight Australia and I never thought I'd say those words because I did used to kind of be like, how can people watch that stuff? And now I'm like, how can people not watch that stuff? It's amazing. Um, but I couldn't just watch that. And there are times, and I watch it with my friend Anne and we watch it at a specific time with a bowl of minstrels and I have a can of G&T in a glass and um, she has wine. And it, and why it, I thought you were going to say a bowl of mints. <laughs> A bowl of mints, yeah, a bowl of raw mints. Actually, I did have a, a bowl of mints once in a, in a, a restaurant in Edinburgh, um, um, steak tartare. I didn't realise it would become... Have you ever had it? Steak tartare? It's, yeah, but it's kind of minced, isn't it? I thought it would be, yeah. More of a... More steaky. Yeah. <laughs> no, minstrels. Minstrels with my Australia. <laughs> Um, but maybe that brings us on to you reading thrillers over the last year, because I think yes. books are like that too. And I love, you know, I love it all. You know, what do you think you need in your, your literary diet to sort of to keep things balanced? Yes, I think, yeah, I totally agree with um, with you in terms of it doesn't have to be. I think people people often say, oh, these are the type of books that I like and, and that's it. And I think it's really important, especially if you're a writer, to try and read different genres, even if you wouldn't normally do it. Um, but the way I fell into reading thrillers was completely organic, actually, rather than me thinking oh, I ought to try and read one. So I had previously read a few thrillers, but really not many. Um, like I'd read Apple Tree Yard and I'd read the Dragon Tattoo series and I'd read He, he Said, She Said by Erin Kelly, who I really love. And then in lockdown, suddenly I could only read thrillers. And it was odd because... I was asking people to buy me thrillers for my birthday. I was saying, I only read thrillers now. Until until this is over, I can only read thrillers. And people were saying, why? And I thought, yes, why is it? And it, I think it's because mostly in thrillers, there's someone in a far worse situation than you, unless you're also a character in a thriller. So I was kind of like, this is, you know, this past year's year and, year and a bit has been tremendously hard for all of us in in different ways. And um, I don't think there's much point in comparing things, which I was at the beginning kind of going, be grateful for the fact that, you know, you can work from home. And in the end, I was like, I think it's okay to go, this is really hard. I'm locked down with a really young baby and a a five-year-old at that that point. We're both trying to work. I'm trying to finish my novel. And um, at night, when I read these thrillers, it was like the only time that I had where I felt there was space. So we weren't kind of on the conveyor belt of homeschooling and eating and, and things like that. Um, and just that feeling of never being able to get away from everyone in the house. We don't have a garden, so we're on top of each other. Then everyone would go to bed, and I was going to bed stupidly late, sometimes at like two in the morning, because I could not stop reading these thrillers. And actually, it got to a point where it was almost like having sweets. I wanted them to be really simple 
I don't include Erin Kelly in this. So I kind of went from people like Erin Kelly and Liz Nugent, who I think put a lot of emotion, have amazing plots, and there's also a lot of emotion and depth to the characters, to writers who would say things like, the man was tall, he had a black moustache. And that was kind of literally it. You don't know anything else about them. Normally, I would kind of want more, I think, or I would want that ambiguity and nuance that we were kind of talking about. But I was just, what I went through a period of just really wanting those ones where it was so just only about plot. It was so mechanical and um, so different, I think, from the way I write. Um, and I, I kind of decided to embrace it. I was like, well, I didn't, didn't ever see this coming, but, but these are really, really well-written books. And I think it's a pity when people dismiss any genre because to get a book published, I think, you know, normally it has to be pretty robust and I found them really gripping. I couldn't stop thinking about them. And my goodness, those plots and the yeah. balls in the air, maybe it's the opposite, you know, in difficult, sad, hard times. Like, I, I don't want, in, in my imagination, I don't want to risk anyone being murdered. I don't like oh, murders. Really? It's yeah. a no from me on the murder front. But all of the, the details, and I think a lot of Agatha Christie's are written so you can work them out. And I can't, and I think that's the other thing is... I'm really bad at remembering, and I am that awful person watching the film, but where'd he come from? Why is he wearing a green hat? But the idea of, you know, writing the Sudoku, of knowing how, you know, having... I don't know if you find this from... You know, that you've written a book that... I I don't want to tell you what your book's about, but it's so focused on sort of feeling and emotion and experience and something very human and almost sort of tactile and something you can really, really see and feel... And this idea that you've got to have that just be planting these little clues and know and things that are neither going to be sort of preposterous nor obvious. I mean, it's astonishing. I and I, I love Erin Kelly as well. And I do yeah. think she, because I love the way that she writes about those emotions and those sort of twists and shifts. And then she does the, the plot as well. I know. She's when a I genius. Got, I know. When I read The Burning Out, and I've listened to her podcast, um, your podcast of this. Uh, yeah, it was brilliant. And um so, kind of She's like wonderful well, yeah she was just and and did she say that who did she say her mentor was was it Ruth Rendell it's Ruth Rendell yeah. yeah and I haven't ever read any Ruth Rendell and actually my mum bought me some of those more I suppose trad um murder mystery or thriller writers for my birthday but I really wanted to stick to for some reason ones that came out really recently and were by kind of women my age I don't know why it's been mostly women apart from Will Dean which I adored the last thing to burn but he's been the only man on on the roster this year actually in terms of thrillers um but yeah absolutely like um she she does and when I was reading The Burning Air by Erin Kelly um which is about six or seven months ago I actually got shivers from down my spine, actually physically with one one reveal of many. Um, when I wrote Jane is Trying, I didn't, I knew that, it, I knew what I wanted to happen emotionally. I don't know if you find this as well, but I kind of knew I wanted some things resolved, some things not, but I didn't know what, because I didn't know what those things were yet. And I was like, I've got enough of a plan, I think, to write a first draft now. I had bits and bobs that I'd written from earlier in the book. But I imagine that with a thriller it's I don't know if you can really do that I don't know if you could maybe you have to work backwards so if someone's hiding through that who they are and then you're going to have them reveal it I don't think you can go well just make them cry a bit at that point and then it'll all be okay we'll just sort it out later I think you probably (laughs) have to plan it out a bit more and I really really admire that and I don't I don't think I could do it would you like to 
at some point have a thriller element? When I wrote the first draft of, of Jane is Trying, um, cause it was my first novel, I, I, my editor moved, so I had, had an editor who's lovely, and then she, she left the, the publishing house. But I'd said to her, shall I, write a, shall I read a book about how to write a novel? And she said, you could. And I read um, Into the Woods, and I read um, Take Your Pants Off. Have you read that? It's oh, I of, don't know I Take know, Your Pants <laughs> Off. It sounds so dirty, um, but it's American. I am here for it. <laughs> I always think take off your pants would sound so much more. Take off your pants, take your pants off. It's one of those. It's the one that sounds less dirty of the two. But I would really recommend that. It's a kind of, um, it's by an American lady. I can't remember her name, but it's kind of really basic. It's like Pocahontas. It goes through the story of Pocahontas and why it works and stuff. And breaks. There's absolutely no pretension whatsoever. Um, Anyway, I, I read those two books and I was like, right, I'm ready to write my novel. And then I sat down, I had the bit with Jane working in the bookshop um, and I knew that I wanted her to kind of be a bit lost and be working in a bookshop and have undergone this emotional thing. And then I did about, I don't know, 20,000 words. I thought, yeah, I think I'm on the right track here. And then I gave them to my literary agent and he was really honest and said, it just doesn't sound like you. It sounds like you're writing a book and it was quite hard to hear because you know when you've kind of worked on something for a while and then I went away and kind of licked my wounds a bit and then thought he's absolutely right it was kind of me going yeah how would I how would I write a book and almost with a self-conscious angle to it rather than just writing it so I redid it and then um I think it, it it was a lot better but I kind of had to go through that bit in order to find out because the memoirs were so different, as I said, because a lot of it had been stand-up and it felt almost like I was just talking directly to the reader. I think it, it did feel like a gear change to do a novel and um, that was just part of the writing process, looking back. But at the time, I was kind of like, gosh, yeah, it's it, it's weird. You think you think it sounds like you and then it's actually really good to have someone to, to who you trust and respect to go, actually. And so, could I write a thriller? I don't know, because would it be like that? I'd have to give it a go and see. I, I always want to put humour in things. And the thing that I really love about thrillers is there is sometimes humour, but it's not the most important element. And I don't know if I could let go of that tendency to, to want to find the bizarre or the funny side of situations. I know even that's possibly one of the reasons why I'm not drawn to thrillers because I do long for everything to be funny and yeah. whatever I write comes out, you know, I don't think it's for me to say whether it's funny or not. It there is. Are jokes it in is. It, so. I'm reading Insatiable at the moment. Oh my God, you're yeah, not. I am. It's so, it's so funny and I'm quite near the beginning and I already just love it and I can't wait to see what happens to her. She's only just at the party and... Um, so it's 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 right at the beginning, but I just it's so, there's so many brilliant sentences and so many brilliant turns of phrase, and I can totally see how you would find it really hard not to make things funny because you naturally do it really well. So it's like that thing of would it be would it be a good exercise anyway for you know for us to go against our natural tendencies and try and mm. try and write oh, a thriller? I'm sort of I'm hugely touched and moved. Never oh, just like say embarrassed. Honestly, it's it's going to get rude. Yeah. It's going to get really rude. Um, which is why I was so pro. Take off your pants. Take your pants off. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I really I like that idea. I just all I really know is 
in the first draft, I think we're working out what we know. And then as we shape it, we're working out what to yield and what to reveal. And I was looking at the first line of A Christmas Carol and that very first paragraph. And sadly, I don't remember all of it, but I know um, Marley was dead to begin with, being the best, worst, strangest first line. It's rhythmically perfect and it makes no sense. Yes. I mean, obviously, I'm sure Dickens just wrote brilliant first drafts and was magnificent and, you know, just flowed out of him. But what would technically be, you know, possibly a Scrooge was a mean man. He did not like Christmas and he was mean (laughs) to the people who worked for him. I think we forget how powerful we are. And I've definitely written things and I've had a go at writing fiction before where I've basically I've been trying to really impress someone who I already assume hates me. (laughs) <laughs> well, yeah. Why yeah, don't I, I just what you mean. write what I want to read? Yeah, it's so true. <laughs> that I think that's what happened with my first ill-fated 30,000 words. That I was almost, it was like as I was writing it, I was reading it as someone who'd given me like one star or zero stars on Amazon for my first book, kind of going, actually, guys, I can do this. You know, and it's like, no, that's so, and you know, that's one of the first things you learn about stand-up, that you should write kind of from the inside out rather than trying to preempt what the audience might laugh at. Um, so, yeah, no, totally, I agree. It's um, it's hard, isn't it, to distill... Like, I can imagine if you're having to explain plot, it feels like... Um, it suddenly, if someone asked me about the plot of my book, I'd, it's kind of like a house of cards. Like, almost once you try to analyse it, it's like kind of like it all falls down. But then I imagine if you asked a thriller writer or... Yeah, I think thrillers are probably the best example because it's so plot dependent that they probably would have more of a mathematical approach to it. Mm. I'd, yeah, be very interested to know, actually. And I do believe that every time we read any novel or watch a film or watch anything on TV, we're absorbing something about the Definitely. way the story is told and how it's together. So I wouldn't be a bit surprised if, in a while, there's a sort of a thrillery element, a comedy thriller with lots of emotion and heart and evolution. Is it? Ah, oh, can't. I'm so. This is it's an awful thing to say as well, isn't it? Like, I'm so excited for your next book. You know, I've just <laughs> finished my book. Leave me alone, please. No, I would, do you know what, maybe there is, I was just thinking about how League of Gentlemen really mix horror and humour and Mm. genuine horror, don't they, kind of, and absurdity as well. So, yeah, it needn't be a thriller about someone locked in a dungeon and, um, you're right, there are so many different types and there are kind of thriller-ish books, aren't there, that aren't categorically categorically thrillers so I love um Lisa Jewell and I don't yeah, know if you've come across her but I was a super super fan of her first books that were sort of packaged and again it's chiclet I love women's commercial fiction and what you're saying about needing to read like the most contemporary thrillers one of the things that got me through lockdown is reading that sort of a you know, funny books by women that are all set in and around the 90s. So I'm having a big, like, Fiona Walker is my sort of Jilly Cooper methadone. And it's just very sort of... In the way, and I think it's just, it's so far removed from, you know, wellness times. Yes, and you're so right. It was all kind of ladette stuff mm. then, wasn't it? And it was very different. No one was really talking about mental health. No. Lots of um, boozing and... Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think I might get into that genre next, actually. What's the book I've read? Did she write The Family Upstairs, Lisa Jewell? Yes. Um, yes, because um, there was two I read in quick succession, which was The Family Upstairs and The Couple Next Door. I wanted to only read things that were like, um, yeah, a, a, a verb and then 
an adjective, I guess it's like, yeah, so kind of like <laughs> something about where someone lives and then, <laughs> um, yeah, the couple next door is Shari Lapina and that was fantastic as well. And I loved the family upstairs. I thought it was, it was so, so unpredictable and yeah, just brilliant. That actually reminds me of one of my favourite Gigi Bloom books. Then again, maybe I won't. I think it's called about the family who move from, I think they were maybe in Queens and they go to maybe Long Island, and I think the dad invents something. And they're my favourite about sort of any family who are picked up and taken away. And what you're saying about reality TV, and I suppose Love Island, and this t- being taken out of your life yeah. and craving a total change of new people in this sort of luxury villa. I mean, it's a novelist dream, really, isn't no, it? Absolutely, because you can... And actually, structurally, it's amazing because you've got a new person arriving in a place, and mm. so the reader experiences all the locals through their eyes so it doesn't feel like exposition you can just yeah um my favorite novel of all time is the majors um and i've read other books by john files and just haven't loved them quite as much although i think he's an amazing writer but for me the majors kind of has everything that i love although it isn't very funny but i don't mind for some reason and it's about a man who goes, have, have you read it? I've never read um, it. Oh, haven't you? Oh, well, it's about a teacher who goes to this island in Greece and um, starts teaching. And so it's just what you were saying, he sort of goes to a new place, up sticks, and he meets a, a, the most bizarre megalomaniac you can imagine. And the mind games that are played are so inventive that there's something very, very slightly wicker man-ish about it for me. And I'm such a big fan of that film and yeah I'd really I'd really recommend it but I was just thinking it's that thing of so, yeah someone arriving in a new place and actually that's try, kind of what I tried to do with, with Jane is trying yeah. without even really realising I suppose that she's going back home isn't she so it's slightly different but kind of experiencing and I often found that when I went home she's moved back in with her parents and my mum my dad isn't with us anymore but when my mum's moved down to London area but when I go back to Matlock where I'm from I still have that experience of kind of seeing people from school and going, oh my God, they look so old. And then thinking, well, so do you, Izzy. You're 42. I mean, what, do you, do you still look in the mirror and, you know, think you look 18 or something? And one thing that I really tried to capture in it is that experience of, I don't know if you have this, of like going back home and seeing people from school or kind of even looking online at someone and realising that most people have kind of now made their choices. It's like, People are either in a relationship or maybe they're happily single or they've got kids or they might have decided they don't want them. Or It doesn't apply to everyone, but there's kind of less open ends than there were. And I find it hard to accept, I think, that we're all a bit older and that we're not really going to go to a field and get stoned or drunk and kind of shout at a group of horses who then chase us and we're all going to stumble <laughs> over a style. It's like... I find that quite hard to accept, even though I've got two children. It's not that I do that kind of thing ever now. It's that I want the option to do you it. You want um, the possibility to yes. be there. You've got to have that space in your imagination where you yeah. could. Yes. Over lockdown, my mum and dad moved from the little town in Dorset where I grew up. We'd lived there since I was 10 and they've now moved. There's still a bit of me that. Because where we were was sort of, you know, the glittering glamour of, of Bournemouth and going on wild nights out in Bournemouth and being sophisticated person who wears to certain bars. And like, yeah. well, those bars haven't been open for 10 years. No. And I'm never going to be... I'm never going to buy a brand new, fabulous outfit from, you know, the Miss Selfridge in the square because 
because they went into administration <laughs> and because... <laughs> I know it's it's and also those things are part of your identity I think I still think of did are they the kind of person who went to Shakespeare's wine bar or are they kind of person who went to the old English and it's like everyone who's kind of grungy went to the old English including me and everyone who's kind of a raver went to Shakespeare's or Harvey's and it's like Izzy these people they own a construction company now they've got (laughs) four kids they're not thinking about that so yeah I know exactly what you mean it's like it can be quite hard to see that, that that bit of your life is over and maybe we'll feel like this when in like 30 years when we go oh gosh that place we used to get our flat whites from you know is um turned into a space station or whatever but yeah um <laughs> I I really wanted to capture that with Jane that she kind of put um that she puts Foley on a bit of a pedestal I think in the same mm. way that I I do with Matlock really it's like looking at you know when uh, a internet reality influencer celebrity person has a picture of themselves and they are so thin as to be two-dimensional and you notice the wall behind them is up by a 90 degree yes. angle and it's the magic of it and it's like looking at one of those isn't there something not right about this image and I don't understand why I don't fit and why I don't slot and if I yes, just you're, so, you're so right because you you look you look back and you see your version of it really don't you you don't and have you I, I I've I tried to actually put this into the book as well, that thing of, you know, sometimes you you remember something from school, especially maybe a distressing thing, and you remember your version of it probably from a time when emotions ran high as a teenager. And then many years later, sometimes you talk about it with a person involved and they go, oh, this is how I remember it. And you realise that actually everything that was your world, it was only ever your version of it. I kind of, um, I find that, I find all that really interesting. I find, I think nostalgia, I'm not a very nostalgic person. I never re, I've never reread a, a single book apart from Adrian Mole because it's so funny. Um, but apart from that, I haven't reread a single book. I don't like looking back really. Um, and I, I sort of think, oh, I could be reading another book. I went, I tried to reread The Magus and, um, I started, I was sort of like, I know what happens. I don't want to read it. I don't, it's almost like I don't want to spoil the memory of having read it and having experienced those um, discoveries and emotions and feelings from reading it the first time. I don't want a, a, a ghost of that by reading mm. it for a second time. That's really interesting because I do worry sometimes that I'm much more likely to reread a book if I've been re you know, I feel as though the book has made me happy and I hold the book responsible. But that, that could have been me, you know, to be honest. Um, I think the mo- the books I reread the most are the ones I sort of was maybe a little bit resentful about or wasn't expecting to enjoy. And I yeah. think it was maybe The Pursuit of Love when I was about 12 and mum said, you know, you'll like this or something. And I'm like, mm, you'll like this. Like, no, I won't, no, I won't. And then was so stunned and shocked and delighted by how funny it was. And that's why I've sort of read it so often. But then are there books where I've not got on with it? I won't say what it is, but I'm reading something at the moment that I'm really, I was really expecting to enjoy. And I'm just, it's getting to a point where I just feel like i obliged to to finish it. And yes, just give it a and chance. You, and you kind but... of you you do it in a stubborn way, don't you? And um, do you always try and get to the end, even if you you think? Because I find it quite freeing. I don't. I, I seldom do this because I think I. But sometimes I just get to even page a hundred, and I think actually I'm not going to read any more of this, and it's sort of amazing. Is it? I think it might be Nancy Pearl, the librarian, who said, 
a hundred pages minus your age. That's how much you can read before that's you give up. So brilliant. But then for a four year old, that's ninety six mm. pages. That's longer than, but not many books for four year olds are ninety six. No. <laughs> um, yeah, no, that's that's very good. I think you've got to give it a chance. I'm going to say this because I don't. <laughs> I think this is fine to say. The Great Gatsby. Um, I don't think it will damage sales by me saying this. I couldn't really... It's like I could admire it from the outside almost. Have you ever looked at a piece of art and felt completely... Or perhaps a piece of classical music is is a good example. You feel completely unmoved by it and you can see the skill and the effort Mm. and you can completely see why people love it, but you don't feel under the skin of it and it doesn't touch you. That's the way I felt about The Great, Great Gatsby. And I sometimes wonder if I read it because... if Sorry, if my experience was like that because at the time at which I read it, because I think I was going through mm. a breakup or something and perhaps I needed a different thing. Yeah, F. Scott Fitzgerald. So every year I try to read Tender as the Night. And when you're talking about the magus and this idea of Greece, and I think it is just this... And have you read Tender as the Night? No. Or did Gatsby just make you think, no, none of him, not for No, me. I've, I didn't, yeah, no thanks. In fact, I'm never going to read a book by a male again. No, I... Entirely <laughs> <laughs> <no>. reasonable. <laughs> um, I, no, I, and in the end, I thought about The Great Gatsby that um, I thought it's fine. And actually, that's not a thing that you should say about anything. You shouldn't say that about the Beatles and you shouldn't... But actually, I was like... I, I thought that was fine and I and I didn't completely connect with it, but it was fine. No, I haven't read Tender in the Night, Is the Night and it's not... Yeah, it's not because of that. It's just because I've been, been reading thrillers, basically. Um, but, yeah. There are a lot of books and I think Tender is the Night is something that I read as a teenager and really wanted to like in that real, you know, dickish, like, ooh, I'm going to read the one that's not the Great Gatsby. <laughs> yeah. I just, there's a really, really, really stupid family guy, Gatsby parody, where the whole way through they're pointing out the plot holes and making assides to each other along the lines of, I'm starting to think this really isn't a very good book. <laughs> that's great. Um, Tender is the Night is something where the glamour of it sort of entranced and captivated and moved me as a very shallow teenager and the sort of the unfolding of someone a very very promising man who just becomes a sort of unraveled alcoholic and it's not really even there are awful bits and tragic bits and shocking bits but the his ultimate punishment is like it's kind of mediocrity there's no like spectacular crash it just kind of fades away and it's seeing that um a bit like that um us by david nichols which i remember reading after one day and i do i think one day is wonderful and i think it's got two of the funniest funniest lines and i think of them often and um I'm sure I've gone on about this in the podcast before, but one is something like Suki was the sort of woman who'd start a note of condolence with the words, well, hey. Um, (laughs) And another is Emma going out with, is it Ian, the comedian? Yes, I think Um, it is Ian. Yes. And him doing stand-up. And she says in all the time that she'd known him, Ian had only ever made her laugh once, and that was when she fell down the stairs. I know because it says so much in I always think the best humour kind of says so much in a single it's yeah it it summarises it all and you can picture it all and yet it's it's so lightly written like really good poetry isn't it there's a real essence of something there yes absolutely yeah you know when I read us 
I was very, so it, I just, I thought, oh, this is just so, so cynical and devastating. And But I went back, you know, because I loved the TV adaptation so much and just the the maturity of it, a book about two people loving each other but falling out of love and the slowness and the way it was captured. Um, yeah, I really like looking back and seeing, you know, what I can see that I missed first time around. But, you know, life is short. I'm also... I'm a woman who who doesn't have children or a proper job. <laughs> well, I certainly don't have a proper job and I cart my children off to childcare and then say that I'm writing and actually just lie around watching Married at First Sight Australia. So yeah. <laughs> It's definitely research. I think yes, there's it a, is, it is. There's a novel in Married at First Sight. Oh, there, there could be a really good thriller about, about reality TV. Mm. Yes. Um, what you were saying about Tender is the Night reminded me of Sister Carrie. Have you read Sister Carrie? Oh, no. Oh, Who's that by? God. I think someone called Carrie gave it to me, actually, because it's her favourite book, Theodore Dreiser. And it's about a very, a very kind of low-status woman who meets a very powerful man and very slowly, and it's a long book, um, things change and he experiences a downfall and she becomes more powerful. It's just, it's tremendously beautiful Again, one that I tried to reread and just couldn't. I feel it's almost like visiting, going back out with an ex and mm. wanting it to be the same and it not being and it being a bit disappointing when you reread. For me, but I, yeah, but I envy people who can do it and get a lot of enjoyment out of it. I think you certainly, you know, cover a lot more a lot more ground that way I think as well that I, re- I don't really it's like not chewing my food properly I eat really fast and I read really fast and I'm sure there's just so much I miss first time around oh um, sure yeah I think I read really slowly and if I don't get something I or don't if I feel like there's a metaphor or something that I haven't fully imagined or or kind of explored, I will stay on that bit until I'm satisfied that I've kind of milked every drop out of it before I move on. So maybe that actually is it. I don't think I do read very quickly. You're getting more bang for your buck. Um, (laughs) Maybe I should try in the summer of slow reading. Yes. (laughs) Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. 
We'll be back to Izzy soon, but now it's time for my Steal of the Week. I've chosen Lucky by Rachel Edwards. The story of Etta, a woman in a loving but frustrating long-term relationship, desperate for her partner, Ola, to propose, or buy a house with her, or something. This might sound like a typical rom-com setting, but it's brilliantly twisted. In an effort to transform her fortunes and change her life, Etta finds herself in the grip of a devastating addiction. The writing itself is addictive. It has the elegance of literary fiction and enough compulsive, make-you-gasp moments to also make this novel a really gripping thriller. I love Rachel's writing, and I think you will too. Lucky by Rachel Edwards is published by Fourth Estate and out now. Now, back to Izzy. I did want to ask about the whether there's like a first book that you chose for yourself or you remember kind of acquiring when oh, you were younger. Yeah, when I was younger. Um, yes, there were two actually around the same time. So the first one is Adrian Mole that I read at my cousin's and I thought was a real diary. Um, I, so obviously I'd read... I read a lot as a child, obviously. <laughs> I read I read a lot as a child. I read things like Sweet Valley High and um, Narnia and, and things like that and C.S. Lewis and really did love reading and wrote a lot of stories as a child as well. But then, the, yeah, the first book that I remember kind of, as you were saying, it's that tricky thing, isn't it, when you get to be like 12 or 13, that if a parent especially says to you, oh, you know, I think you should read this, you're, I was like you, kind of immediately like, I won't like it because you think I'll like it. I, I really wanted to discover things for myself. And I was at my cousin's and I saw the first Adrian Mole book on the shelf. And um, I read it without anyone knowing I was reading it. So that felt great because oh, nice. no adult had... Yeah. Plus, I'd forgotten about this, being of that age and anything yes. that's got t- diary in the title. Yes. Oh, boy. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, because now... I think there are lots of things with diary in the title for young adults and I can sort of I think diary of a teenage witch is why well, I haven't read it but um whereas I think kind of back when I, you're, you're younger than me I'm sure but kind of in that kind of era I just think there were less books for young teenagers and kind of um young adults I suppose essentially so yes it did right. I'm 36 so oh yeah no, so I'm 42 much, so we're kind of probably in the same ballpark aren't we that yeah there was kind of Adrian Mole Judy Bloom was massive at our school and if a boy bought you forever by Judy Bloom it was like oh my god that's, um, I've never heard that because I know most of my forever stories that everyone passing it around but a boy giving it that's really yes, a boy that's a, big a deal. boy called Rob who I was going out with um I he asked me what I wanted to for Valentine's Day and um I said forever by Judy Bloom and he bought it. And obviously the internet didn't exist then, so he must have had to go to Derby to and go and ask for it. And um, yeah, and it was like really, and no one could believe I'd got a copy of Forever. I mean, it was amazing. It was like having porn, wasn't it? It was yeah. um, like I, this thing, thing of having a porn mag being passed around at break, which we had at school as well. Um, that thing of like, you've got Forever. Oh my God, keep it in a brown paper bag type thing. How much did you know about it before? Did you know any of the details? No, I just, just knew that, there was a penis that it, it was nor that it was dirty, and that was why I wanted it. I was like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, did you know, did you kind of hear rumour of of what was in it before you read it? Definitely. I think I had read quite a lot of the sort of softer, sweeter Judy Blooms. um, And I kind of knew, because I felt like with her, you're always in in safe hands. And I I just remember 
kind of not the point being you know that it wasn't dirty because of course it was dirty come on but but it really in a way that I couldn't quite articulate or understand then it was somehow kinder and more loving and more open-hearted than lots of the other you know places where I was trying to find out about sex because I yes. loved are you there god it's me Margaret yes so did I, I must increase my such a good title as well isn't it are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. I mean, what's better than a diary? A prayer. Yes, exactly. And also that title throws up so many questions and it's so sweet. She's saying her name. It's me, mm. Margaret. It's, it's just lovely. It's like a cry out, isn't it? Into the, into the wilderness. It's brilliant. And a title with a question mark in the middle mm. of it is quite unusual, isn't it? Uh, so the other book, yes, Adrian Moll, and then the other one was Catch-22, um, ah. which I read at Manchester Youth Theatre when I was 16. And I did it, it might have been my one of my parents' books or something, but I ended up with with it in Manchester. And um, I found it so funny, as I did Adrian Mole. I remember those two books. Those two books were the first time that I had laughed on my own at something that I'd read, I think. And it was brilliant. And I I still remember specific bits from Catch-22 that really made me laugh. And that's another one I tried to reread and failed. <laughs> so it, it must be that I remember them from, from all those years ago. Because yeah. it's such a big deal, I think, when, you, when a book is allowed to be funny. And it's not yes. funny in a way that sort of, you know, obviously there are some really brilliant funny books for children. But when it does feel adult, I mean, although there's so much of Adrian Mole... Because I think I was, and obviously that's the point, is that, you know, it's a very specific sort of teenage pomposity. And quite a few of jokes passed me by first time around. I'm like, it's entirely reasonable to want to have your poetry read out on Radio 4. Yes, exactly. That's what we all want. Yeah. <laughs> You're so right. And actually, when I reread it, which was because I was, uh, I was taking part in a programme about Sue Townsend, where lots of us were reading short bits of her work and talking about why we loved her. So I thought, oh, I'm going to reread it and it'll be quite interesting to reread it as an adult and there were so many things that had passed me by the first time round, and politically as well I remained blissfully unaware of what was going on with Adrian and his family the first time I'd read it I was just obsessed with him and Pandora and his yeah. poetry the funny thing is that when I was um reading Adrian Mole I was writing poetry worse than Adrian's and songs about boys that were really angsty not funny at all and not trying to be crucially um, and yet I could laugh at him in, in a kind of quite arrogant way of going, God, look what this guy's doing. It's like, well, actually, no, you're doing exactly the same thing. You're writing this terrible poetry, but it's weird that I couldn't see it in myself. I couldn't see how similar I was to him. Very early on, um, we had Nina Stibby, who I, you know, love and adore. And I, I love her. her. I've got basically Fantastic. got a copy of Loved Nina in the present cupboard, which I'm looking at at any given time because I just give it to people and then replace it with another one. Yeah, I think she's amazing. Oh, that's excellent. But she said that there was a period where in writing letters home to her sister, when sort of Adrian Mole was doing the rounds and everyone was reading it, there was sort of a month or two where, you know, all of her letters were sounding quite moly. Oh, yes, sure. But that's a perfect example of what you consume coming out, isn't it? That's what I think is so fascinating about if someone could trace you know because I think it happens with not just um what we read but what we what art we look at and what we watch 
and there's something I mean in in my book she's trying to finish Sharon Osbourne's autobiography throughout yes. it, isn't she and that's because I my friend that. did thanks and actually also I really wanted to you know I wanted her to work in a bookshop and not really care that much about books because I thought um I I hate the when I used to work in the wine industry, which I did for years, and people would kind of go, oh, "I don't know anything about wine." Um, but, um, I'll just have um Moet and or you know I'll just have I don't like Chardonnay, and I used to think you haven't you haven't tried on oh, no, oak Chardonnay, you haven't because they give us such good training. Um, I sort of feel the same about books in that people will go, "Oh gosh, you know I don't, I'll just I don't know anything about or what's what would you recommend?" And I wanted Jane. To and I think there's also a kind of sometimes like there is in theatre as well, kind of a literary snobbishness. Not from not from um, you know I don't find that when I've been to book festivals or anything. But I wanted to take the piss out of that thing of like, oh so and so is coming. You know we've got this book. We can't you know we can't let them down. And the authors being both of the authors in it are horrible, aren't they? And really arrogant and demanding, which quite is- eye-wateringly, brilliantly awful. <laughs> Thanks. I just loved, I especially loved writing Philip, the second one, who's really misogynist. And, um, but I, yeah, I wanted Jane just to be reading Sharon Osbourne's autobiography because she's really enjoying it. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And when I was filming one series of Peep Show, when, um, oh my God, that it's Fifty Shades of Grey came out. Mm. I couldn't put it down. And everyone was going, oh my God, you're reading Fifty Shades of Grey. I was kind of like finishing a scene and scuttling back to to my bag and getting it out. And um, I ended up going skipping past some of the sex bits. Um, so yeah, I didn't look for the metaphors. Um, I didn't milk every metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> Not sure there were that many metaphors. <laughs> um, but I just had to know what happened. I couldn't believe how well it was plotted and it really and I I and I remember going um getting the train with it and another woman saying to me I haven't ever read a book but I'm reading this and it's so brilliant I thought that is so great and I really I don't you know there are people who say that that that, you know that book isn't very well written and stuff that series of books I just think people are reading that's that's so that's so great their imaginations are being I just, yeah, I feel quite strongly about that. I, I didn't really realise that until I wrote the book. And then um, she loves Sharon Osbourne's autobiography and it's really what she needs at that time, isn't it? She's come out of a horrible relationship. He's he's cheated on her and it's a sort, almost in the same way as um, we might watch reality TV and go, do you know what, I actually just don't want to think about mammoth things and kind of big, deep, sweeping metaphors. I want someone to tell me about Danny Minogue and her feud with them. I was reading Sharon Osbourne's autobiography just before I started writing the book. You know, like, when you write something and you're like, oh, I'm writing this. I was like, I never planned for her to be reading Sharon Osbourne's autobiography. And I also didn't know that I wanted her to kind of not know that much about books. And it all kind of fell into a place that felt good. And I was like, oh, she's reading Sharon Osbourne's autobiography. That's perfect. And then I I read another of Sharon's autobiographies and found that she's a Trump supporter. And I was sort of like, oh, God, I don't like Trump. I don't know if I... And then my partner said to me, it doesn't mean that you like Trump if you put Sharon Osbourne's autobiography in your book. It's okay. And that was an example of when I had to go, oh, yeah, it's not me I'm writing about. Because I'm so used to doing stand-up, and with the first book, it was about me. So it was really interesting to go, oh, yeah, if Jane likes that book, it's absolute. It's absolutely fine. It doesn't mean that I'm saying Trump is brilliant. God, there was some Rory about 
Enid Blyton, very problematic fave, so, yes, obviously yes, yes. held terrible, 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 you know, views that I, you know, can in no way condone. But like a lot of kids, I read those books growing up. But there was also lots of sneeriness about her, you know, her poor literary style or something. Yes, and sort she of was a famous fireball being having the same characteristics as each other and things like that. But I felt very much like. Um, excuse me, if you go back to First Time Mallory Towers and read the Daryl Sally Violent Music Room Showdown, I think you'll eat your words. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's true. We've been reading The Enchanted Wood, I think it is, me and my daughter who's six. And I was thinking, oh gosh, you know, they get to the house and the girls immediately go and help the mother to collect blackberries and make a pie or something and the boys kind of go and dig things and um like it's immediately all the girls do sewing and the boys go on an adventure but when they get to the enchanted wood i think it is um they they're all equals and they kind of go on these amazing adventures and it is i i think you know i'm really excited to see what world they go to every time i like you cannot condone those views and it gets really really tricky i read a brilliant article by Nick Cave about whether you can like art that someone produces if you disagree with them morally, I suppose. I think Morrissey was being used as the example. And he said that he thinks that when you produce something and send it out into the world, it's not Mm. yours anymore. So actually, it isn't really anything to do with you. I'm not quite sure how I feel about it, but I did feel when I wrote this that I had a responsibility to... um, I think I go... I think I worry a bit too much about... Um, kind of language and what an offence and I could probably loosen it up a bit but I was kind of imagining every single person I knew reading it at different points and people who are gay and people who are straight and people who are lots and lots of different things and sort of going oh gosh would they find that bit would they think that I meant this and and I think that I could probably take a step back from that. But I worried about with the first. I worried about that with the first book as well. That I had real people in it and was sort of going, "Are they going to read it?" And no, it's them. And I've changed the name and the gender. But it's just sort of like, <laughs> don't worry. And also, I think far less people read your book than of your friends than you think will. Um, I should have remembered that from the first time. I mean, all these people, and I've done it as well. When people, my friends have written books, and saying, "I promise I'll read it," and you really mean to. But we all have these big uh, to read piles a lot of the time and um so that's the other thing it's not like everyone's going to buy it on the day it comes out and have taken offense by 24 hours later because you, know? <laughs> <laughs> you sort of do you know, they will start, you know two hours from, between the hours of 9 and 11 they will read it and at 12 o'clock i know exactly what they think but yes humor as well is so it's tricky isn't it because yeah. i think i think that if you're funny, you should be able to get away yeah, with no, it. Yeah, I know, I know, yes, but but that stick out as being offensive if it's not as funny, do mm. you mean? Yeah, I know what you mean. I think, I think my conclusion, oh, basically, I've said things on stage, especially, and I remember things from all my Edinburgh shows that now I wouldn't do, and same as you, that actually, I think weirdly at the beginning, when certainly no one knew who I was, and I'd be lucky if kind of, you know, five or six people came to see me, you have a bit more freedom, don't you? Because it's like, it doesn't really matter what I say because, you know, just I haven't got anything to lose. And I think as time's gone on, I kind of have um, cared a lot more. But I think there was something to do with it being in the written word. So, Mm. and perhaps the things that I worried about weren't, it was where another word would do. There was a bit about, there was a bit 
where Jane spoke about going back home. I think it's, I think this is still in the proof and then I changed it. It was like, is that a lazy way of doing something that actually isn't very kind, I suppose? Maybe that's, it's less about offence and more... So th- she's talking about being back home and kind of thinking, uh, you know, because she's quite arrogant in a way when she first gets back to Foley, isn't she? And she's been living in London and kind of a little bit snobby about the people who might still be there and sort of saying... And she's, there's a bit where she's walking through the park near the beginning and she says... Um, you know, what's everyone from school doing? I, I went to London and achieved this and they'll probably, um, you know, got married to people from school. Um, and then there was a bit where it said, have piled on the weight, blah, 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 blah. Mm. And I, like most women and I said some men, kind of over the years have had different relationships with my body and my weight. And when I reread it, I was like, I don't think I want that in. Because I, although I think that Jane would think it um and it's not me who's thinking it I still think it's a kind of a bit of a hack way of saying something right so I changed it to going to the same pubs in the same order on Saturday nights and that kind of did what I needed it to do i.e that they kind of gestated and they Mm. yeah but and actually that I think that is a a smarter line and a funnier line because it is just that bit more specific and more but there's a joke I agonise about in Insatiable where Violet's horrible boss where it's something like and it's really sad isn't it to know your own work so well but um but you do, work don't you? Because <laughs> I've, I've edited it and I've edited it and I've yeah. edited it again and I thought it was done and I had to edit it again. And yet this line survived all those edits. The only vaguely artistic thing about him is he looks like what would happen if Gilbert ate George. Now, I right. wrangle <laughs> over that and I think, firstly, I think I would only make that joke about a character. He's obviously a, a wealthy, powerful white man. I don't think I'd make that joke about anyone else. Sure, sure. And... As the thing progresses, we learn that Violet is very, very, you know, struggles with sort of, you know, a eating disorder with a very complicated relationship with food and her body, as does all women. So I'm like, well, it's it's her voice, it's not. But then I think, should that have come out? Well, that's why it's hard, because I think that's a very well-written joke. There's something really satisfying about it and... I know what you mean about it being a kind I of... I like the way powerful. it hits the ear. Yeah, it's, <laughs> Which is it's no so defense. concise. And it does... It, it's, it's, you know, it's so well written. And it, it, that's why it's so difficult, because you're not saying that. That's the difference between writing a memoir and a novel. It isn't what you think, but I suppose what you're saying is it's still you who's written it. So it's that weird... It's that weird... But, I, I yeah, I think it can only... I don't think there can be a blanket rule, can there? It's just we have to go on instinct with each, with each thing. Is it? I just I could talk to you for weeks, possibly yes, months. Me too. But sadly, <laughs> we do have to wrap it up. Are there any books you haven't mentioned that you would like to? The ones that I would recommend that I haven't mentioned. Um, there are two that I've just read. Um, I will be recommending yours in about two weeks when I've finished it. Um, but Katie, Don't commit yeah. to anything yet. Who knows how no, it's going to end? No, I just know. It's like when you see someone you fancy when you're like 18 and you just think, yes, I'm sure. There's, I don't think you, I don't need very much to know, to be honest. Um, unless they all are revealed to be completely like all MAGA supporters. <laughs> um, <laughs> There's much chance of that. And I right at the be... end, Violet joins Fortune. Yeah. <laughs> the last chapter. You thought you loved these characters. Well, actually, yeah. Um, 
Katie Wicks's Delicacy. I've just finished Witches. Oh, yeah. Desperate Have to you read, read that. it. Not I yet. I really like it. I think um, I'd really like it too. Yeah. It's, it's brilliant. Is it a novel or a memoir? It's a memoir, but I'd call it, I hope this doesn't sound too, I, I'd call it almost, it's it almost like poet, a poetic response to memories. I don't know if that, it's kind of in, in bits, it's almost like essays. And in other bits, there's a script and um, there's, it's so great. It's almost like she's kind of responded to um, this memory of cake. The thing that links them is there is cake involved in every memory or every bit, every aspect of it. Um, she's kind of gone, what's the best way to communicate my feelings about this? I'll do it as a script or I'll do it. And it's very funny. Um, and the, it, uh, the stuff about disordered eating and... Um, childhood and nostalgia and teenage years and and grief um it's so open and it's so funny um and it's also just got like we were saying those lines that can very funny lines that reveal like with David Nichols that kind of reveal so much about someone and oh that sounds brilliant I'm going to go and find that now yes do it I went to Southend with two of my friends and they went for a walk and I just got in the bath and read it for two hours so yeah I always think that's a good a good litmus test of whether you like a book or not and then the other one is Bad Choices by Lucy Vine which (gasps) you probably yes yes um which uh yes I really really loved and very different from Katie's book but just so fun and um also says so much about female friendship and also is really like a celebration of um friendship and yeah I just really loved it it was so brilliantly deceptive because it's just so fun and repulsive and compulsive and then there's a shift and you think I'm I'm in so deep I know it's so clever for that reason and I also really recognized myself in a lot of it you know the stuff about school and that kind of angst that you get at school as to whether you're going to be accepted or not and different from your friends and yeah and is it okay. Natalie and her crush on like the worst boy in the world and again yes. the way she's semen stains yeah. yes <laughs> <laughs> absolutely everything to just yes. to make that make sense yes yes absolutely um so yeah they're the other two that I'd recommend that I haven't mentioned oh. Excellent. Well, I'm really glad I've read um, Bad Choices by Lucy Vine because now I'm going to go off and read Delicacy by Katie Wicks. Izzy, I could not have had more fun. Thank you so much. You've I feel the same. so wonderful. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Please come back anytime. It's been oh, a joy. thanks. I'd really love to. Huge thanks to Izzy. Jane is Trying is out now. Jane is, in the best way, like no heroine I've ever met before. I recommend it strongly and I hope you love it as much as I do. You can follow us at YBooked on social media, look out for book recommendations, words of wisdom from old guests and occasional shelfies. We really love it when you share the podcast with your friends and a huge thank you to everyone who's left us a five-star review. It helps other people to discover us and their new favourite books. You can find a list of all the books mentioned by Izzy on acast.com slash booked and check out her selection in our bookshop on bookshop.org. We'll be back in your ears in the autumn. For now, I leave you with this from E.M. Deatherfield. I'm asked what I think of Harriet Hume, but I'm unable to say, as have not read it. Have a depressed feeling that this is going to be another case of Orlando, about which was perfectly able to talk most intelligently until I read it, and found myself unfortunately unable to understand any of it. See you next time. Thank you.
Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Thank you.